Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Well, friends, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, if I just put down grass seed, it's all perspective. It's a great day, but... You know, I've always wondered why these uh, days like this that look like this driving in, I was saying to, to Debbie driving in, these should be high attendance Sundays. What else do you have to do today? I mean, you're not going on a picnic, I'm pretty sure. The softball games and baseball games and soccer games are all canceled. This is the perfect day to be here. If you're watching on TV, you should have been here today because you can't do anything else. But you all, man, I, I will say when I woke up this morning, you know, I woke up as a if that's what I did, when I opened my eyes this morning, I just went, no, 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 I don't want to get out of bed. Did you feel that way this morning? So you're here. Give yourselves a round of applause. You made it. And, and you feel better because you're here. So glad you are. You know, it's all a matter of perspective. Uh, and my perspective has been, uh, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, how things have gone. Believe it or not, it is uh, 20 years ago this fall that I was called to be Columbia's pastor. And that was a really different day. I mean, I just think about all this change in that time. And listen, this is true. My kids were in elementary school and now they're married and have their own homes and no grandchildren yet, but I'm praying. And uh, you know how that goes. And um, I didn't have a single gray hair on my head. Now let, let's, let's, let's listen to that again. Before you, no gray hair. After didn't have any. And um, a lot of other things have changed I can't talk about too. But I'm just not, I'm not as agile as I used to be. I'm not as quick on my feet as I used to be. I don't recover as fast as I used to. I don't have near the energy I once did, though I think I still have a lot. One of the big things that's changed, you, you, know, what, you know what these are? Who, who knows what these are? In this service, I'm going to get more takers on this right here. These are, these are readers. That's what we call them. I mean, they're, they're magnifiers. That's what they are. They're glasses. These are relatively weak ones, but I'm going to tell you, I, I need them. People sometimes ask me, uh, how do you possibly look at your notes, et cetera, when you preach, when I do use notes? And the answer is that's, that's why I use iPads. You can blow them up to like 80 point. You know, every page has about three words on it nowadays. And um, I'll never forget the first time I discovered these. Now, now, the way it is now, I've got these everywhere, everywhere. So just so you know, if you're a member of Costco, Costco puts these on sale about three times a year. Uh, when they do, they're like everything else at Costco. They come in bulk. So you get this, this clamshell that takes you about 40 minutes to cut into. You know, the stuff I'm talking about. Who designs packaging these days? But anyway, they come in, you know, like fives, I think. I can't remember. And whenever they go on sale, it's just, it's just now a reflex. It's a habit. Oh, they're on sale. Grab a pack. And put them in the basket because the problem is I'm losing my eyes. I'm also losing my brain. And so I can't remember where I put these. And so the answer, of course, is you put them everywhere. And, and multiple pairs, too, because they disappear. Something in the house eats these. I'm telling you, this is like socks. They just, somehow they, they just get, uh, I don't, consumed. Uh, and now, you know, luckily, I'm not alone here. Uh, what percentage of 50 years, uh, people 50 years and older have uh, problems reading stuff nearsighted unless they are farsighted or unless they're nearsighted? And the, the answer is 
100%. That's exactly right. You're not going to escape this. You are not unique. You, know, you already know this. I, I would tell the younger people, and they're going, no, nah, it's not going to happen to me. I remember when I said that, you know, the eyes are going to become less flexible. You can't focus as close up. If, you're, if, if whatever problem you have is going to be exacerbated, that's how it is when it comes. I'll never forget the first time I discovered this. So it was about, I don't know, a decade or so ago, and uh, I was in the basement of my parents' home uh, when they used to live in Radford, Virginia, and uh, the basement was dark. It was a dark basement. It was, uh, it was you know, kind of a, a, a family roomish kind of area, and we're all packed in there. And my two brothers and I are sitting together on the sofa that's in the middle of this room, and all of our family members are all around us, and we're talking, and we're also just, you know, shooting the breeze about different things that are going on. And my younger brother, he's reading something, and he finds it profound, and so he wants for us to see it too. Now, my younger brother's 10 years my younger. He's in the category of people who does not believe right now they will ever need these. And so uh, my younger brother's reading something. It's dark, remember, and he passes it down the row. It goes first to my middle brother, Lee, who's a year and a half my younger, 18 months, almost to the day. And, um, and he's in the middle and he reads this. And, uh, and I notice as he's reading that he's got on a pair of these. He's younger than I am. He's got on a pair of these. And I thought, that's sorry, slub. You know, the poor guy. I just felt sorry for him, you know. He passes it down the road to me after he, he, he remarks. He passes it down the row, and I pick it up, and I move it a little farther away, and a little farther away, and a little farther away, as long as my arms almost put it between my legs and stuck it out there somewhere. And then uh, my eyes squinted, and I started to try to read this. And my, my younger brother, now they're both younger, my younger brother, he pulls the glasses off of his face, and he goes, here. And I go, oh, I don't need those. And he said, oh, yeah, you do. And you know how brothers are. I said, no, I don't. I mean, I, I, my eyes are really good. He goes, just try them. I go, no, I'm not going to do that. And he goes, just, just try them. What do you have to lose? I put his glasses about like these onto my nose and look at that text. And I went, no. I could read again. I could see again, and I suddenly became aware that I did need these. When I first came to Columbia, I was the, one of the youngest people on the staff team. Sort of relished in telling some of the old heads, you know, how much older they were than I. Now I'm one of the oldest. All the kids around me, but I've got some that are close to my age. So I'll let you in on a little secret, okay, because this, you know, Brett's family's here. Brett Flanders, he's got these really good-looking, they're really chic. I like them. These glasses, they're totally clear at the top. They're just readers at the bottom. I'm teasing him about these one day, and he goes, hey, Jim, you ever lose your glasses? I go all the time. He goes, common sense, brother, common sense. You're going to need these if you don't already. Adam, I'll give you a pair. (laughs) So just about the time I'm going to talk about this in this service, last night I happened to be with Butch King for the whole evening. And the reason uh, we both were going to a, a funeral together and uh, so David saw our student pastor, his mother passed away, and her funeral was a Korean funeral, was yesterday evening, a strange time. And so after he finished the whole day of Christmas presentations, I said, you know, you got to go right by my house anyway. Come by, I'll drive. We'll ride up together. And so afterwards, I got a, a great place you're going to love to take you for dinner that's like 
mile, five miles away from where we're going to be. Well, well, you know, it'd be a lot more fun to go with you than by myself. He's just great. So he comes and he gets in the car and he starts answering emails from the mornings. The stuff that people are hitting him up about the Christmas things up. And he's holding his, he's holding his phone way out in front. I go, Butch, uh, dude, he's a little younger than I am. I said, Butch, dude, you having a hard time there? And he goes, yeah, my eyes are just really tired. He goes, they're tired because the, the, the print that we did this year for the Christmas music is different than I'm used to. And they just got really tired this morning. I said, is that right? He goes, yeah. I said, did you have a hard time reading the notes and the words on the page? He goes, I did. did yeah, apparently people noticed it yesterday. He said, I did. I said, that's interesting. How old are you, Butch? He tells me. I go, huh? I said, that's intriguing. I said, have you tried glasses? He goes, no, I don't need them. I said, this is cool. We go, we go to the funeral, couldn't read the program anyways in Korean, but we get to the restaurant and the restaurant is what I call an old person menu, which is what they do now at all of them because a lot of people who go to restaurants are, are my age or older. And you know, so the, it, they're, it's huge. You know, it's not crab cakes, it's crab cakes. It's big, bold letters like your father types email with. That's what it is. It's on, you couldn't miss it. Even I could read it without glasses. I look at Butch and he's over there. He's squinting, he's looking. I go, Butch, dude, you need some glasses? He goes, nah, don't. Okay. We get in the car afterwards. He's reading email again. He's holding it. I go, Butch, you know, I'm going to tell you a story. I tell him a story I just told you. I said, so here, I reach into the ashtray, what we used to call the ashtray, pull out the pair of glasses I keep there because I keep them in my car too. And I, I hand them to him and I said, just try them. He goes, no, I don't need them. I said, just try them. He put them on. He goes, oh no. So if you love Butch King and you go to Costco, Foster Grants are on sale. You get him a couple of pairs. He's going to be needing them, and everybody will. Now, the thing is, sometimes you need a little help seeing. You need, you need a different perspective. Things need to be magnified for you. And I need to tell you that's where I've been for a little while. I'm not there now. Um, the pandemic for me, I can't talk about how it affected you. But for me, it put me behind the curve. And the way that it put me behind the curve took me by surprise because I've always been somebody who could see out ahead. I could see what was going to happen. It was easy for me to say, hey, this is where we're headed. This is where we're going. I can see what we need to do. I can see what's happening in the culture around me. I've always actually been, a, God's given me a gift to be able to intuit and perceive what was not only happening right now, but what was about to happen. Even the pandemic, if you remember, I could see it coming. It wasn't hard to see what had to happen, how we needed to organize to address it, how we needed to get our church to come together around that issue. We moved fast. We were agile. And I've always prided us on being agile. When I came to Columbia 20 years ago, Columbia was in a hard spot. Many of you weren't here, but if you were, it was a tough moment. And I could see what we needed to do to get on track. And after some time of getting to know people, gaining some common respect with leaders, moving forward, the process that we went through, our church just took off. Lots of young people started to flock in. Exactly what I thought would happen would happen. And then it took me a long time to get the congregation on the trajectory to build this new facility because in the 930 service, you couldn't find a seat. I was preaching four times a weekend before the pandemic. I do not miss that. I miss a lot, but I do not miss that. My voice was ragged. I was tired, so exhausted on Monday, I could barely speak. It was, it was, I couldn't wait for that facility to be finished. And then the pandemic hit. And the pandemic had an impact 
that it just slowed us down. It, it ground us to a halt. It caused people to freeze in place in many ways. It, it wasn't just me. I could see it, that people were just kind of stuck, kind of not knowing what to do. It brought some good things. It wasn't all bad. We could confront it. We could deal with it. We could handle the crisis of the moment, but it had a freezing effect on us. And meanwhile, the culture around us was accelerating at breakneck speed. It was moving so rapidly that we couldn't keep up with it, and it still is. Cultural trends that had been in place since the 1960s got dramatically accelerated. The anti-institutionalism that was confronting our nation just got entrenched in that time. The nation became dramatically polarized, unable to deal with difficult realities and with difficult feelings that people had, unable to converse about things that were really important. <coughs> the culture's moving faster, and we're moving slower. It's like we suddenly entered a rapid, and we were anchored in place. It's like we couldn't move, but everything around us was flying. And the thing is, I, I tried not to be there. I just kept thinking, you know, it's just any day I'll wake up and I'll sort of be back on track. But that, that did not happen for me. And about spring, I found myself in quicksand of a sort. Now, let me tell you, you think about doing a lot of things. You spent 20 years building a church to a place, you think you can see where it's going, something like this happens, all kinds of thoughts go through your mind. Uh, I, we, we, I, I inter even entertained the conversation. I said to Debbie, hey, you know, honey, if, uh, if we sold our Northern Virginia house and moved to a different place uh, with the amount of money that we've accumulated in retirement funds, et cetera, I, we could retire. What do you think? If that's what you want to do, I'll always go with you, but what's the call? What's the call? What's the moment asking for? Why did God put us here right now in this spot, in this place? I started asking you this question last week. Did God not know there was going to be a pandemic? Anybody out there think that? Did God not know where the culture would be right now? Did God not know about anything that's going on? Well, of course, that's preposterous. And so you've got to believe that God put us here in this time and this place because we're the ones who are called, challenged, and capable to make a difference right here and right now. The beginning of the summer, I gathered our staff team, and our staff team's been phenomenal. I mean, they're always great, but through the pandemic, they were just rock solid, and they did not get burned out. And that was intriguing to me because a lot of my colleagues that I was talking to were saying, man, my staff is totally wasted. They can't do anything. They're completely burned out. How about yours? And no, I don't think my people are there. But we were a little stuck. And so I said, I'll tell you what, guys, here's what we're going to do. First of all, if you can front load your vacation in the summer, that'd be great. So we're back in August when people start to recur because, see, here's what happens in this area. A church like Columbia recycles about 20% of its membership every year. I don't know if you know that or not. But that many people move away every spring. And that many people come back in and more every fall. So you grieve 
20 years of this has just about killed me. You grieve in the spring because you say goodbye to some of the most amazing leaders and finest people you've ever known. People you've come to love, respect, regard. You love leaguing alongside and you watch them, them go away. See how we were doing drama yesterday. Scott and I were just talking about this, Scott Flanders, and we were saying, we get these great actors in here and then God moves them somewhere else or, or the federal government and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the two. So they move them somewhere else and we lose these great actors. I said, yeah, but you know, but God always brings us the right people. But for three years, we went through these springs of moving people away and not moving new people in in the fall. Count it up. That takes a toll. Few other people go for other reasons, whatever the case, and suddenly we're in a very different position. And so I said to my staff team, I need for you to use this summer to recalibrate whatever it takes for you to get yourself back ahead of the curve and off the dime. That's what I need you to do. And if I'm going to preach that, I'm going to do that. And so what it meant for me was hours and hours and hours and hours, mostly alone, but sometimes with people who could think better than I could in this particular moment. Reading, studying, journaling like crazy, praying a lot, and mostly studying Scripture. Just digging back into the Word of God and saying to the Lord, speak to me through the power of your Holy Spirit. And there was a moment in about the middle of the summer where I did wake up and I felt like things were radically different. Like the Lord had thrown me back out ahead of the curve. Not long before that, a member of our church sent this picture to me that he'd taken of a rainbow over the new building. I've saved it until today. You can see our, our building's way farther along than that now. And when I got it, I, I just almost wept. I did shed tears. And I was like, this is, this is a symbol. The storm's over. And the Lord has a plan for what he's going to do with, with us. So, Lord, show me, show me your will and show me your way. Let me show you a couple of statistics I think are revealing. I don't generally like to preach statistics. Uh, I read tons of them. I especially regard Marist and Pew Research, the two best firms in this nation, the double-blinded firms that are very cautious about the way they do research, the ones that are careful about how self people self-identify. Pew Research especially is amazing. I worked with them when I was at Princeton on uh, 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 some writing that I did. I found them to be amazing. But Pew has done a faith study in this nation for well over 50 years, asking people the same questions every year. It's kind of interesting. We're going to talk a lot about prayer in the new year. I'm going to designate or ask our staff with me and our leaders. I already asked our elders to designate 2023 the year of prayer. For us, so we'll be talking about that a lot. But one of the things that they found is that the greatest predictor of how quote unquote religious a person is is one thing and one thing alone. You want to know what it is? Saying grace. People who actually pray before their meal is the greatest predictor of how much they wind their faith into their life. It's fascinating. That's just an aside. But a thousand statistics I could share with you. Here are the ones most relevant for this moment, too. Number one, only 27.5, actually, percent of Americans aged 18 to 29 are connected to places of worship. That is about half the percentage of people double their age. Half the percentage of people double their age, 18 to 29, 
It is half the percentage of people, generations who've come before them and how engaged they were in church at the same period of time. 28%. Now, interestingly enough, if you go to the coasts, which, by the way, is where we're located, and especially to the big cities of the coast, for the most part, that statistic is about double what it would be in most places like we live, and it's over double what they discovered in the Washington, D.C. metro area. We're on a par with cities like Seattle, Portland, uh, Boston, believe it or not. That's where D.C. is right now. If you're a single adult, that statistic's much higher. There are certain things that influence that statistic. In the center of the country, you've got a little concentration of people who are a little more involved, but not much. Where we are, this is incredibly low. Now, what does that mean? When our whole deal is passing the faith from one generation to another, what does it mean when we're not reaching the next generation? Few of them seated in this room, and they will tell you. They'll turn to you right now and say, that's right, my friends aren't in church. My kids tell me that. My friends aren't in church. They don't go there. They don't care about it. They don't know anything about it. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the faith. They don't respect the institution. None of that. What does it mean? I was talking to a senior adult in our church who probably might be in this room today recently, and she said to me, you know what's so wonderful about Columbia is we've got so many young people in our church. And I said, what do you call young people? She looked at me like I had three heads. I said, you know, the average age in our church went down for 18 consecutive years. For the last two, it's gone up. Did you know that? She goes, no, really? I go, yeah, actually the last three. And I said, "Uh, yeah, that's right. And not only that, but when you talk about young people, I'm pretty sure you're talking about people who are somewhere between the age of about 35 and 40 and have kids. She goes, yeah, they're young. I said, no, they're not. You're just old. I'm old. That statistic should wake us up. Now, there are lots of reasons for this, and the church is doing a lot of navel-gazing about this right now. What does it mean? Have we become over-politicized? I would say yes. Have we become interested in things other than the gospel of Jesus? I would say yes. Have we become overly judgmental of everyone else out there without being introspective about who we are in here? Has it become easy for us to criticize the culture and not to look deep into our own hearts? I would say yes. Have we become less serious about sharing the gospel? Every statistical analysis says our evangelism is at an all-time low. We are just not telling people we believe in Jesus. What are we to do with that? But this is a problem. And if the church of Jesus Christ is to continue to grow the kingdom of God, this has to be rectified and remedied, and the solutions are not going to look the same as they did in 1956 or 1986. We're going to have to get very creative about the way we connect with people, care for people, and share the gospel of Jesus. Statistic number two is even more interesting. This one will blow your mind, or at least it blew mine. Less than 40% of self-described evangelical Christians now attend church. That is, if I went to any mall, although people don't go to malls anymore, if I went downtown, if I went anywhere where people are gathered, well, people don't really gather right now, do they? But I would have asked them, hey, 
How would you describe yourself religiously? And they would say to me, I'm an evangelical Christian, which typically has meant I'm born again and I believe in sharing the gospel. Those are the two big things. If those persons were to say they're evangelical Christians, and then I pulled them further and said, how connected are you to a local church or any house of worship? And I were to discover that less than 40% of them were connected. What does that tell you? Imagine if I were to conduct a poll and discover that less than 40% of married people lived with their partner. What would you say about that? If I said less than 40% of people obtaining an educational degree actually go to class, whether virtually or in person, what would you say? Less than 40% of those who share our faith are engaged in local churches in America. Wow. We've even lost our own people. For whatever reason, we're not even connected to those who believe in the mission of the church. Or do they? I do find this intriguing because I'm hearing all kinds of blame and aspersion towards the church for the polarization that exists in our nation. And I think this statistic tells me, oh no, the problem is that a political movement has become completely unhinged from the church of Jesus Christ and its values. They're completely unaccountable. They're out of community. They don't talk to anyone. They don't communicate with others who can question what they think or share their own thoughts with them. When people become disengaged from community, they become dangerous. It's plain and simple. Now, when you take these two statistics together, you get a rather intriguing snapshot of the moment, don't you? And the question you have to ask is, as a local church and a local church leader, you and I, what are we to do in this moment? How are we to respond? And I came to one gigantic conclusion that completely changed the picture for me. This may seem small to you, and it might be small to you, but to me, it was an amazingly life-changing in a moment. I woke up one day and said, by God, we are a startup. Could you just say that with me? Not by God, just we're a startup. We're a startup. We're not just an institution that has existed since 1856, founded by six abolitionists, the story you know well. We're not the institution we were in 1956 at the peak of worship attendance percentage-wise in the United States of America. We are not who we were in the revivals of the 1980s. We're not even who we were in 2008 or 9 or 10. We're a startup. Now, we are a well-funded startup. We're a well-resourced startup. We are very fortunate to be who we are and to have the things that God has given to us, but we're a startup, and we have to think like a startup. So the question I want to ask, and not everybody can even get here, I know that, but the more of you who do, the more we can remedy everything I've just been talking about. If you and I were to start a church today, if we were to plant a church in the inner suburbs of Washington, D.C. today, and we had no prior history or previous understanding of everything that should be, what would we do to reach our neighborhood for Jesus Christ? 
what would we do to transform this city? And that is the only question that we can afford to ask. We can't ask when are we going to start doing this or that again, or when are we going to go back to this or that, or when are we going to have this or that, or how is it going to, when is it going to be like it was when I was a kid? It's not. None of you are going to live long enough to know life again like it was when you were a kid unless you are a kid. Kind of interesting, isn't it? These kids will take this for granted. This will just be the way the world was. They're like the early church. This is just the way it is. We have to think like a startup. Now, the next question I asked is, Lord, show me what our church should look like if we are a startup in this day and this time. And the first thing I went back to is our values. Do you guys remember, uh, many, some of you in this room will, at the 930 service, you know, I, not many people probably have any context, but about 18 years ago or 19 years ago, we sat down with the book of Acts and we came up with a set of values that we gauged the turnaround of our church on. And those values, there are 10 of, 10 of, Ten of them, because friends, verbosity is the Columbia way. Ten very complex values. Out of, I was proud of them. I was excited about them. They gave us what we needed at that time. Some of them stuck. Warm welcome, authentic fellowship, things like that. But for the most part, I am the only person in this room who can name all ten of those right now. Tell me if I'm wrong. Is there anyone out there who can stand up right now like back in your Bible drill days and tell me those 10 values. If you can do it, I will give you $100. No one. And that shouldn't surprise you. Not a single one of my board of elders members could name more than three. Not a single member of my staff team could name them. So this is fun because I said, okay, I want right now, I want you guys to name our 10 core ministry values. And we go around and go, what does it matter with you people? And then I laughed and I said, no one can. Don't worry about it. The problem is we cannot explain succinctly, uniquely what Columbia is. And do you understand Columbia is incredibly unique? To be conservative theologically, orthodox, if you will, and as loving, as open as this church has been is a rarity. It almost doesn't exist anymore to the point that people leave here and they go out and they come back and go, somebody just here today, one of our guests, and said, we have not been able to find a church anything like Columbia anywhere we've been since. I hear that all the time. Now, if we're that unique, then we are for some people who are looking for a movemental church that is seeking to follow Jesus and actionalize the plan that Jesus gave us, but isn't trying to do something for itself, gain power for itself, prestige for itself, whatever the case may be. We exist for others. Do you agree with me? That's Columbia. We exist for others. And the scripture God kept sending me back to is one that was pivotal on my calling day to Columbia and is, in fact, the basis of our whole life discipleship model and was pivotal when I was called to the pastorate and was pivotal when I came to Christ in college. And that's Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 25. Now, I'm going to insert a little piece of Matthew here because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, the ones who see things similarly, they all share this, and each of them gives it a slightly different piece of the puzzle. Like, remembers a different thing that Jesus said. And I'm going to insert a piece from Matthew here, but mostly this is the, the passage. So let's, let's contextualize this. This is a pivot point in the gospel. It is in Matthew, it is in Mark, it is in Luke. 
By pivot point, I mean that everything changes after this moment. How does it change? Jesus' ministry can be divided into two halves. Many of you know this, 18 months each, one and one half years each. In the first half of Jesus' ministry, from his baptism to this point, Jesus conducts what we call the public part of his ministry. He's out preaching and teaching among the crowds, changing things into loaves and feeding people. Jesus is doing public miracles. He's doing all sorts of public teaching. Occasionally, you get a private moment when his apostles pull him off to the side and said, what did you mean by that? And he tells them. But for the most part, it's Jesus in public and his disciples walking around behind him and observing. After this point, Jesus will send the apostles away from him two by two. He will begin preparing them for the church that he's about to start. He will begin doing what would I call leadership training, just discipling them personally. He'll turn his head around from the crowds and toward his core group after this moment. This moment is a shift. It's a time where Jesus recalibrated the ministry of the apostles. And that's where we are right now. So once when Jesus was praying in private, recalibrated, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elijah. If you're a biblical scholar, you know those are two closely connected things. And still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. Now, this is when Jesus asked the pivotal pivotal question, but what about you? What about you? That's the question God kept asking me at the beginning of the summer. What about you? I'm not talking about your friends. I'm not talking about the culture. I'm not even talking about the big church. What about you and your calling? What are you about? Jesus asked the apostles that, and Peter, the spokesmodel of the apostles, so this is all of them. He answers, you're God's Messiah. If you read Mark's presentation in Mark chapter 8, Peter's answer is presented this way, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. However it's told, it's clear what the implication is here, that the reason for the change is because all of a sudden Jesus has become more than a teacher. He's become more than a prophet of God. He has become their Lord and their Savior, and they're ready to follow Him deeply. And now Jesus is ready to call them to the most difficult mission of their lives. Now, let me insert the Matthew piece here and come back to it. Matthew chapter 16, 17 through 18. Matthew adds this little piece. He remembers that Jesus said this. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. There's nothing in the culture could have taught you this. Nothing in the institution of Judaism could have taught you this. This has to come from beyond. You've got to be connected with what God is doing in the world to know this. And I tell you that you are Petros. You are rocky. You are stony. You're a rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates 
of Hades will not overcome it. Now, traditionally, there's been this discussion about whether we're talking about Peter as the actual rock upon which the church is built or whether it's faith like Peter's upon which the church is built. And I'm going to tell you, having been to the place where this happened, and I'm going to take a group there in November. I can't wait. I'd go every year if enough of you would go. It's life-changing. Having been to that place, Jesus wasn't talking about either one. I'm absolutely positive. When he said, you're rocky, to Peter, he was saying, I've made you a fortress, a strength, a stronghold, force against force. But what's the other force he's talking about? A couple of weeks ago, when Greg did his poetry and Brett sang, which led people to email me and say, how come you can't sing? And how come you can't write poetry? They were talking about the storm at the center of the of the Sea of Galilee. And in that storm, the reason that they were caught there is because Jesus had asked them to go to the other side. And the other side he'd asked them to go to was the most pagan place they ever visited. It's, it's, none of them had ever been there, I can promise you. You didn't set foot there if you were a good Jew. Jesus was taking them to the place where is located what we today could see as Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was the center of pagan worship in the Holy Land. Yes, there was such a thing. It's where all the bastardized Jews lived. They had inbred with other people, and it was a whole different expression. It was a whole different thing. Woman at the well, that's that context. There's lots of context there you got to understand. But there was no place like Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus stood at a place in Caesarea Philippi that is called the Rock of Pan. So he was standing on the Rock of of Pan, and he was looking up, no doubt, at the stream of water that was shooting out of the side of the mountain. And that stream of water shot out of a place that was called the Gates of Hades. And the reason they believed that it was the Gates of Hades is they thought that that water came from what we might call the River Styx or, or the river that flowed through hell or the underworld and shot out right there. And so they came there to conduct pagan worship. They prayed for fertility and for wealth and for fame and all the things that people pray for as they do to anyone. And they go to that spot and conduct this, 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 this depraved, messed up worship that involved all sorts of sexual expression and weird stuff. And Jesus is standing on the rock of Pan when he says this. Now, why there? I mean, if you're going to start the church, Jesus, do it in Jerusalem, right? Go to the holy place. Stand in front of the temple. Not here, but Jesus chooses Caesarea Philippi to reorient his ministry, turn his ministry, and to teach the apostles what he's about to do. And they're going to be radically different than the temple, radically different. Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church on the rock of paganism. You will someday go to the most pagan places in the world, and you will find there an expression of faith in me. You will someday go there and find holy people. And that happened in short order, of course. And you can still go to the original sites where the little churches are. Somebody was talking to me last week at the picnic, and they were saying, hey, I've visited some of these places, and I was shocked by how small these little churches were. It's because there were so few of them. They were the minority by far. And Jesus says to him, I'm going to make you so strong, Peter and the other apostles, that you will be forced against this force, and these gates of hell will not be able to stand against you. That's a message for our day. What is the church? We will find out right now.
We will not find out when everybody wants to go there to be seen. And we will not find out when everybody wants to go there to get a job. And we will not find out when everybody wants to go there to be popular. When it's the popular thing to do, you will not find out what the church is. But today, you will discover once again, like we did in the book of Acts, this is what the church is. These are God's people. They live differently. They think differently. They love differently. They act differently than everyone else around them. So Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. Resurrection power. And then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. This isn't new for you, but hear it like it is. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, die to yourself, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? I started to think, okay, if this is the day I'm called to, And if the Lord's going to put me back out with you ahead of this curve, and if we're going to address this moment, then the question is, how do we speak about what our church is and what our church is not? How do we say this is what we believe is the front line of the kingdom of God? We are not on mission for God. The church is the mission of God. What must that church look like in this day and time? And how do we tell people this is what we're after and this is what we're not? And I came up with a restatement of our values. Working with my staff team first and then working with our 2020 team, who really helped me with this, though they made it more verbose. But anyway, that's the Columbia way. And then working with our board of elders. And what I want to do is to show these to you. And in November, I'd like for us to actually adopt this. I'd like for you to be able to explain what it means. And what I want you to be able to say is that we are, as a congregation, all new, all in, and all out. Just to see if we can do it, let's practice it, can we? So you are what? All All new, all in, all out. I don't care if you remember the phrases that are under these, which are descriptors to help you understand how to describe this. Use your own words. I want you to remember that we're all new, all in, and all out. And if I wake you up in the middle of the night and ask you, what are Columbia's values after this fall? I want you to be able to say, well, we're after you ask me what I'm doing in your bedroom in the middle of the night. Well, we're all new, all in, we're all out. And then somebody says, what does that mean? And you can say, well... Let me tell you how unique my church is. Let me tell you how bold it is. Let me tell you what it's about. Let me tell you about what God is doing. Now, these are backwards. Sorry about that. But I want to start with the positive. So all new is follow Jesus. There's only one way to follow Jesus, and that's to be a whole life disciple. There's no other way. All in is take up your cross daily, and all out is about denying yourself. So this is rooted in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. So what I want to do today, don't be tempted to jump ahead. Next week, I'm going to be all in and all out. This week, I'm going to be all new before I'm all in and I'm all out. So let's talk about just briefly what all new means. So the first descriptor, 
just for your education. You don't have to memorize this. If you do, I'll, I'll be really impressed. But remember all new. We are being renewed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. We are being renewed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. Now, you may say, in fact, I almost hope you will say, if you're Columbia, you go, well, of course. I mean, this is common sense. I'm going to tell you it's not common sense. I'm going to tell you that this is really rare today in churches. And I'm going to tell you that this kind of hopeful outlook on this world is completely different than what I'm seeing in many, many places. I'm also going to tell you that values we could have taken for granted in previous eras, you cannot take for granted now. We believe that God is making all things new. Amen? Amen. We believe that. It's not just for out there somewhere. After the second coming, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, of course, that's going to happen. And we anticipate it. And when it does, come Lord Jesus. But we believe he's doing that right now through his church, that he is building a foretaste of the new heaven and the new earth. We believe that God wants to make the life of every man, woman, and child new. And we believe it because we are experiencing the newness that comes through the power of the resurrection. The cross is wonderful. It's the cross through which we receive forgiveness of our sins. The cross is wonderful. It's the cross through which we see the amazing love of God that it would go and die for us. But the resurrection is the point of it all. The recreation. He's making all things new, and He's given us the Holy Spirit for this to happen. For everything we do to be rooted in this is critical. Everyone else around us is pessimistic. Everybody is worried about everything. The world's falling apart at every turn. But we believe that God is making all things new. We live by that reality. We breathe by that reality. We are hopeful. Amen? Amen. Secondly, And it's similar to it in a way. The way we're being renewed is this whole life disciples of Jesus. Frankly, I struggle with this and I always have. Whole life discipleship has been so central to who we have become over these last 20 years. This idea that who we are in Christ, our identity, gets integrated into our lives in specific ways in places of influence. Who we are determines what we do and where we do it. Then we find our weak points, go back to who we are, and it keeps around that cycle. We are the presence of Christ and Christ is making all things new. But to say whole life disciples is is ridiculous because disciples shouldn't need any modifier at all. The problem is we now live in day and a time. Remember, less than 40% of people who profess to be evangelical Christians are actually attending any church. We live in a day and a time where people think they can believe in Jesus without actually following Jesus. And I've tried to teach you that pistuo to believe means to follow. There is no other way. You're either a whole life disciple or you're not. As one great discipleship teacher said, he or she who does not seek the kingdom of God first does not seek it at all. Lots of people who say they are Christians are not seeking it at all. What does it mean to really follow Jesus? Disciplined. Waking up every morning and praying to be used by God. Going to bed every night and thanking God for the day he gave to be invested for his glory. 
Putting up treasure in heaven and not on earth. All these things the Bible talks about, what does that mean? It will be your only legacy when you die. You know that nothing else you're doing is going to matter, right? This is all that will matter to you. Start to think that way. And thirdly, the third descriptor. We are being renewed to serve and give joyfully in Christ's church. It brings us joy to be engaged, connected, serving, Rather interesting thing that we've discovered statistically, too. I don't know how much you guys enjoy this or look, look at it, but there's such a thing as what we call the happiness index. And actually, every single major surveyor has what we call a happiness index. One of them measures it simply. For, for some 70 years, they've been asking people, are you struggling? And tallying the answer. Or are you thriving? And tallying the answer. Look this up when you get home if you want to. Post-pandemic right now, twice as many people say they are struggling as did just a decade ago. In fact, what's really interesting about this is far more people say they are struggling now than did during the pandemic. What does that mean? But I think just as significant, half as many people say they are thriving as did just a decade ago. Fewer people say they're thriving now by far than did during the pandemic. Can we ask ourselves just for a moment, did we actually learn the right lessons in the pandemic? Because I've been hearing a lot of interesting reporting from people about what they learned. So at the time of the pandemic, people were telling me, you know what I've learned? I'm over-involved. I'm over-engaged. I need more me time, more quiet time to myself. I need more leisure, more vacation. I don't want to work as much as I did before. Now we can begin to ask what I thought we'd be able to. How's that working out for you? Are you happier? Let me just tell you, in case you don't know, you were created to be busy. You weren't created to lay around and eat grapes. You were not created to be disengaged. You were created to be connected to community in multiple places and ways. You were connected to people when you were happiest in your life. Just think about it. You were engaged and you were busy and you couldn't find a minute, but you would have said you were happy. Your life was meaningful because you were making a difference and you were connected to something bigger than yourself. And that makes all the difference in the world. Now everybody has become nothing but a navel grazer. They got plenty of free time to sit and look at their bellies, which are getting bigger and bigger. How's this working for us? It's not... And it's not going to because you were not created to do nothing. You were created to do something, to be something, to make a difference, to be engaged. You were created to do great things. And any great church will give you opportunity to find your place, to make a difference in someone's life. Think about it. Just imagine for a moment. Do you ever feel better than you do when you lie down at night totally exhausted from the day. Do you know this feeling? And I often will turn to Debbie and go, oh. Older I get, the more I say that, oh. And you look back over the day and there's somebody's life 
that you radically affected for good, right? There's some coworker, there's some church member, there's some person in poverty, there's somebody you, you rat, could be your own children, you radically affected, and it wasn't you. The days you do good stuff for yourself, they're fun. They're fine once in a while, but you don't go to bed at night and go, what a great day. My God, I laid around all day, man. I did nothing. What an awesome day. What an amazing day. I had so much free time. That's awesome. Those nights you go to bed, your eyes fly open, and you go, what's it all about? What's it all mean? See, following Jesus actually changes your life. It doesn't just change your eternity. It does that, but it changes your life. It gets you engaged in the work that God is doing to make the world new. And when you're engaged there, you're going to be the happiest you ever are. You will thrive. Paul said it this way. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, 2 Corinthians 5. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation is here has come. The old has passed away. It's gone. Behold, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and now, read that last piece with me, gave us the ministry. What do we call the ministry of reconciliation? We call it the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. That's what we're up to. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has passed away. The new is here. In fact, for anyone who gives their life to Jesus, that person has become a startup with great potential, on fire and ready to change the world. I just got to say, you know, we haven't done this in a while, and I don't even know how you respond to it. But there are people listening to me online and and in the house who've not yet given their lives to Christ. Do you know what you're missing? You need to trust me when I tell you that some Christians aren't showing you what that looks like. But we know that God is making all things new. He can make your life new, your job new, your marriage new. God does amazing things through those who follow his son as whole life disciples. So I just got to ask you, if you've been listening and thinking, are any of you ready to give your lives to Jesus? That call is from somebody who's ready. Is anybody ready to recommit their lives to Christ? To say, Lord, I know you're asking to be, me to be more engaged, and I embrace it. You know, would you just bow your heads with me for a second? Heavenly Father, may your Holy Spirit fall not only on this place, but on the homes of people who are watching us right now. And if there's any person that is under conviction by you, you're calling them to yourself because you love them with an everlasting love. I pray, Father, that right now you would give them the courage, the boldness to pray. Heavenly Father, forgive me and send your son Jesus to live in my life now and forever. Move me by your Holy Spirit. 
And if there's anyone who knows they have lapsed, fallen behind the wave in this time, and that you're calling them to be re-engaged, I just want to pray that you would, you would right now give them the courage, the boldness to say, Lord, your way is the right way. And so now, brothers and sisters, in the power of the Holy Spirit, if God is speaking to you and you're ready to either give your life to Jesus for the first time or to say, Lord, I need to re-engage in everything you're about to follow Jesus more fully and richly, would you just stand up where you are while everybody's heads bowed and their eyes are closed? If you're at home online, we've given you a little poll just as a way to respond. And then in a moment, I'm going to give you some email addresses so you can tell us if you've decided to make a decision for for Christ to be baptized or to enter the life of the church. But here in this room, is there anyone that we'd be bold enough to say right now, I need to give my life for the first time or to give it anew? Just stand up where you are. Thank you for doing that. And I want to invite you in this moment that if God is speaking to you in some way, it's kind of interesting in the last service, a few respond during the service and then afterwards people came up to speak to me. We're scared sometimes to stand boldly today. So if you're ready to follow Jesus and, and to be baptized, at the end of this service, if you're standing and you want to do that, would you just come talk to me? And let me give you the opportunity to know what it is to be surrounded by people who love Jesus like God's calling you to. And online, if if God's been speaking to you, I don't care where you are, we will call you, we will contact you. Just if you'll respond to these email addresses after this poll, one of them is mine. Just contact me. People have been for three years. Contact me and tell me. You want to follow Jesus and we'll help you. So, Father, you know what you're doing through the power of your spirit. Some of it's just starting in this moment. And we'll continue towards some time in the future. And you're moving right now. We know it. And you are calling a generation of human beings you created in love back to yourself through your son, Jesus. So continue to move in us and through us and in the lives of others who give themselves to you, we pray. And Lord, we're ready, each of us individually and as a church, to be a startup for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. Would you just watch a couple of announcements before you go? So we are all new, all in, and all out. You go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.